0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A slash decoder.
1: Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio
2: Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I'm talking to Horacio Gutierrez, Head of Global Affairs and Chief Legal Officer of Spotify. I asked Horacio to come on Decoder this week and help me understand why Spotify and so many other app developers are so frustrated with Apple. Horacio recently testified in front of Congress about Apple's business practices, and he just wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal calling Apple a ruthless bully. It's a lot, but it's all part of a trend. If you've been listening to Decoder or reading The Verge or just following tech news recently, you probably know there's a lot of government interest around the world in managing the size and power of big tech companies. A few weeks ago, we had Senator Amy Klobuchar on the show to talk about that hearing in Congress and her proposed antitrust law reforms. There are ongoing antitrust lawsuits right now from the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission in various states against Google, Facebook, and Amazon. There's a ton of regulatory pressure in Europe with a new proceeding against Apple and a long history of enforcements against Google and Facebook. And of course, there's a trial between Epic Games, which makes Fortnite and Apple. Epic sued Apple nine months ago, claiming that the iPhone maker unfairly restricts competition for app distribution and in-app payments, and requested sweeping remedies from the court, including allowing other app stores on Apple devices. That trial took three weeks. It involved testimony from both Apple CEO Tim Cook and Epic CEO Tim Sweeney, and produced a mountain of internal emails and documents from both companies as evidence. At the heart of it all is one number, 30%. That's the fee Apple charges app developers for in-app purchases of anything digital. To make this simple, when you buy a physical hardcover book from Amazon in the Amazon app for $10, you pay the entire $10 to Amazon. But if you were able to buy a Kindle book in the Kindle app for $10, three of those dollars would go to Apple. Amazon doesn't wanna pay that money, which is why you cannot buy books in the Kindle app on the iPhone. It is a weird situation. Now, Epic claimed that all of this is anti-competitive, and we had a trial. We're not expecting a decision from that trial for weeks, if not months, but I wanted to understand what all of this legal maneuvering means, what we've learned, and how involving courts and politicians in the workings of our phones would actually make them better. There's some fuzziness there, right? I don't think it's obvious to most people that having politicians redesign our phones is a good idea. So I really wanted to push on what Horacio sees as the biggest problems with Apple's behavior, what he would do to actually fix it, and how all of that connects to having more interesting, innovative, and better products in our lives. Because if you can't make that case, then aren't we just moving money around? I also asked Horacio if he sees a connection between how he perceives Apple and how musicians perceive Spotify. After all, they're both huge companies that most working creatives don't get to negotiate with. And Spotify has been buying up big chunks of the podcasting ecosystem, giving it a dominant position in a fast-growing industry. Horacio unsurprisingly pushed back on these comparisons. He cited a range of statistics from Spotify's Loud and Clear website that lays out exactly how and how much it pays artists around the world. But as all of these companies get bigger, the dynamics that play out between platforms and creators feel eerily similar. Keep that in mind as you listen to this conversation. What does it even mean to have a market if so many players don't feel like they can negotiate? Okay, Horacio Gutierrez, Chief Legal Officer of Spotify. Here we go. Horacio Gutierrez, you're the Chief Legal Officer of Spotify. Welcome to Decoder.
3: Thank you, Neil. Great
2: to be here. I feel like we've been liking a lot of each other's tweets as this epic Apple trial has been going on. It feels like we should just talk to each other. And the real reason I want to talk to you, I want to definitely talk to you about the trial, but you just wrote a pretty scathing op-ed in the Wall Street Journal called The Monopolist Worm in Apple, in which you called Apple a ruthless bully. So tell me what you mean by calling Apple a bully.
3: Well, listen, Apple's a large company. It's an incredibly successful company and an admirable company in many ways i'm a fan of apple's products uh, have always been one of the, one of the things that people commented on after they saw my testimony in the Senate judiciary antitrust subcommittee meeting a few months ago is that they uh they couldn't believe that I was being critical of Apple while visibly wearing an apple watch <laughs> but the reality is that you you can't admire a company and and a lot of what they've done and the beautiful products they create and be critical in the way that they behave in, in, in certain aspects of their of their business. And, and, and it is clear to me that when it comes to their policies on app stores and the way in which they're treating, especially competing apps, but a whole variety of apps on their app store is just unfair. And I think it deserves uh, regulatory attention. And I think they're getting regulatory attention for it. Uh, you can love a company and at the same time, be able to point out things that they should be doing differently. So there's regulatory
2: tension in the United States. There's a lot of regulatory tension in the EU. I want to talk about that specifically with you in, in compare and contrast. There's also legal attention with Epic versus Apple. But I, I noticed as I read this piece, you didn't lay out any specific remedies, any changes that you want governments or judges to make. What do you think needs to change?
3: Look, there, there are two things. There's some concrete things that are needed in order to restore the competitive environment. And then there there's some sort of longer-range issues and things that have to happen just with respect to online platforms in general, and especially for large gatekeeper platforms like Apple. Concretely, when it comes to the App Store, it is very clear that the choice to tie Apple's proprietary payment system to the App Store was an arbitrary choice. It wasn't like that in the beginning. It wasn't part of the... App Store in the beginning, just as the 30% Apple tax wasn't a requirement when we made it into the App Store. They bolted that on later in the process, and in doing that, they created this environment in which competing apps really have to contend with Apple's own music streaming uh, service as well as other competing products on what's not really a level playing field. So it's actually quite simple. We want Apple to go back to the situation that existed at the time when we joined the App Store. We want them to undo the tying of their proprietary payment system to the App Store and all of the other anti-steering provisions, which is a fancy word of of saying punishments and penalties that they've created for those people who do not want to use their proprietary payment system basically restore the situation to the way it was before their anti-competitive abuse started.
2: I hear that. I, I want to talk about that in depth. But it feels like one of the hills you have to climb is that people really love Apple, including regulators. Again, you mentioned people calling out the fact that you wear an Apple Watch. You clearly like the products. But regulators, the general public, people like you and me, we think the company makes good products. We're generally happy with it. Tim Cook always calls out their customer satisfaction in excess of 90 Is a piece like this or, you know, Epic's PR campaign they did around Fortnite that was very funny and snarky. Do you have to wage a public relations battle as well in order to win this sort of policy battle that you're trying to win?
3: I don't know if I would call it a public relationship battle, but I think it is important for people to be told about all the bad acts that companies like ours have experienced on the part of Apple. I think the perception is because their products are attractive and their products are popular. And obviously, there's a whole legacy of Steve Jobs and what he meant for Apple and for technology in general. One has to overcome this presumption that everything they do is equally innovative and pro-competitive, when in reality, that wasn't the case. And and we faced, every time we've had these discussions with, with regulators and policymakers over the years, even it, before we filed our complaint in Europe, we did notice that we had to overcome a number of assumptions and a number of myths, so to speak about um, apple's behavior and they needed to be educated not based on our opinion but based on the actual facts What did Apple do and when and what was the justification for the steps that they took the fact that they you know created these obligations after they had lured apps into the app store. People don't realize initially when the iPhone was launched, it was designed to only have Apple's own apps in it, but they were at the time in this dogfight with Android, and they saw that they were not gonna be able to keep up with Android unless they opened up the app store, which they did later on. They had this campaign on TV, there's an app for that, and they were touting how every user could find any app that they wanted on the platform. And then they got to the point where they achieved critical mass in terms of applications. And at that point, they started to change the rules and they started to tighten the rules. And they started to do that, especially with respect to applications on the App Store that were competing with Apple's own services. So people need to be reminded a little bit of history so that they understand the pattern of behavior and the motivations behind those actions on the part of Apple, which is why we felt we needed to tell a story. We were the first ones, I would say, that had the courage to be able to come out. It is not easy to make the decision to take on a two trillion dollar company with the global footprint and the power over life and death of an app developer that they have. But now we're not alone. It's like the dam broke and there's all kinds of companies that have come out and in many sectors of technology and media and, and other areas. And and now it's it's clear. It sort of reminds me a little bit of what happened. In the Microsoft case, where, you know, initially the issues were with some microsystems and a handful of other companies. And then at some point, it just became a chorus of companies pointing out there is a fundamental problem here with the way uh, this company behaves. And it's one that needs to be remedied if we're going to allow the next generation of technology companies to emerge.
2: So you have laid out this case in the EU. You filed a complaint. Obviously, we were talking just a couple of days after the EPIC trial has wrapped up, laid out a very similar story in that trial. What, if anything, from the trial stood out to you?
3: Well, just a couple of things. Obviously, when we filed our case, we didn't have the benefit of of going through discovery of a number of documents and internal email that really opened the curtains on the way that Apple was thinking about these things. So there's a lot of very interesting internal communications that really reveal the way Apple executives were thinking about the App Store and the imposition of the Apple's payment system and the, their intent to lock in users and things like that. So obviously, in that sense, the trial has been very revealing. The other thing is, you know, it's remarkable how little we learned about Apple's explanation for these things. They they continue to go back to the same pretextual explanations for why they do what they do, they continue to say, well, we have to protect the privacy and security of our users. And that's why we have to charge 30% and have all these other restrictions. But how can it be indispensable for them to do all those things in order to protect privacy and security when they don't even apply those rules to you know, a number of other apps that are on the app store? If it was that essential, there's really a disconnect between the explanations that they're trying to give and the reality. The other thing that struck me is how disingenuous it is that they would say that nobody's ever looked at the economics of the App Store. Nobody's even asked the question, how much money does the App Store make? I mean, you're you're talking about tens of billions of dollars of revenue based on the estimates that are out there. This is not like the budget line for your printer toner at Apple. This is a huge sum of revenue. and, And I think it defies credulity uh, for Apple to say they're not doing this for the money and don't even they haven't even asked how much money they're making there. So there's a number of things that have come out that are that are quite telling uh, about the way that Apple has thought about these things internally. And there's a clear anti-competitive pattern behind their actions. So let me push you on this a little bit. One,
2: there were multiple sealed documents and sessions that obviously you and I didn't get to see. But as far as the public discovery, Epic wasn't able to find anything, any charts or presentations or graphs or financial results that would prove Apple was actually keeping track of App Store PL, profit and loss. So you would think Epic would be laser focused on trying to find that. And as far as we are aware in the public record, they were not able to. But second, I do take Apple's point that their exertion of control over the platform is required to keep people safe from the massive number of threats that everyday users of internet services face. So if you don't want to see a massive amount of extended credit card fraud, it is better for Apple to just hold all the credit cards. If you don't want to see uh, a massive amount of social engineering, it is better for Apple to more tightly control data. And, you know, like Facebook has a lot of thoughts about that. But I I, I take that point. I think that the question is how does it relate to 30% is the rate,
3: right? That's exactly the point that I was trying to make, which is the connection between the need to charge 30% of all revenues generated by apps that compete with Apple's for the most part in perpetuity, 30% forever of the subscription revenue that is generated. How does that in any way connect to the desire to keep users' data protected and uh, to keep them secure? If there is a connection, why they, then they only charge the thirty percent mostly to digital content and 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 gaming applications and not to Walmart or you know Facebook or Uber or other things like that? It's a complete completely arbitrary construct and it is not justified by privacy security. Let me just say, by the way, Apple should have enough of a powerful incentive in the billions of dollars that they generate from selling devices like iPhones and iPads to keep users safe. That's where the bulk of the revenue comes. Having users' data be protected and users be secure is one of the selling points of those devices. So the notion that all of a sudden they would stop investing in privacy and security protections if they didn't have the 30% tax that they imposed on the apps, uh, app store is just ridiculous. It, and and it, it really defies uh, credulity.
2: So the rate and the negotiation around the rate, or the lack of negotiation around the rate, feels like the issue. If I could wave a magic wand and set that rate at 15%, would would you be happy?
3: Yeah, well, let me take issue with your premise. It, the The issue is not whether the rate is 30 or 15 or 10. The issue is that the rate is arbitrary, and they get to set it unilaterally because they've insulated themselves from competition. What should happen is if Apple should be able to charge 30 or 50%, If they can convince users in a market economy that the value that they provide justifies the 30% or the 15% or the 50%, what we're saying is they actually prevent competitors from coming in and offering alternative payment systems, and therefore there is no market. There is a monopoly on payment systems, which is why they can afford to impose the 30%. Let the market decide enable PayPal and MasterCard and other new payment systems to come in and then let, let users decide, vote with their dollars on whether Apple's technology is so superior when it comes to payment and all these other things that they're willing to pay 30% more.
2: But that so that market is really complicated, right? Because the market for payment processing service is not consumers, it's app developers. But the market for privacy and security is consumers, right? So how do you connect those two markets such that you're saying to regular people, we're investing all of this stuff in keeping you safe, which is Apple's argument, and you're saying to Spotify and Epic and whoever else, our technology solution is better such that it's worth more money than PayPal.
3: Well, you know, if app developers had the choice of offering more than one payment system, they would decide which one is better for their products. And then users ultimately would decide whether they want uh, to use those services or or not. So yeah, yeah, the decision on which payment systems to incorporate would be left uh, to the apps and the users then will decide which apps they trust. That's the way it has always worked. That's the way it works on most other platforms outside of the mobile operating system device. That is actually... The way that it that it should work so that there's real competition, but developers don't have that choice. Developers can't even tell. E- even if you had a system in which you said, "Well, you have to offer Apple payment systems as a cho- as a choice," but you can tell users there are others. And by the way, here's a price difference. You can go with the Apple in-app purchasing system. The, your product will be 30 percent more expensive, or you could use this one that has PayPal as the service technology provided, will be 30% cheaper, let users decide. Why can't users make that choice based on the information that is transparently provided to them? Um, That's the concern. The market is not operating. So people assume, well, it's always been like that. You kind of knew what the rules were when you came in. And that's when I stopped them. And I say, well, no, that is not historically correct. It wasn't always like that. It wasn't like that when we joined the App Store. Those rules were bolted onto the system later on by Apple once they knew they had a position where people had no choice but to accept the terms that Apple would impose unilaterally.
2: So I I think about other disputes in related industries. The one that comes to my mind most often is a carriage dispute between a cable channel and a cable operator. And we see this all the time. Some set of channels are going to leave direct TV and then both sides do a bunch of marketing, and eventually both sides cut a deal, and the cable channels come back. Epic kind of used that model, right? They pushed the hot fix. Apple kicked them off the store. They launched their marketing campaign. Now they're in the lawsuit. On and on it goes. Have you ever thought about saying, hey, look, in 90 days, we're going to leave. We're going to make Spotify off iOS devices, unless Apple comes to the table. Every Spotify user Make your voice heard so we can we can gain the leverage to negotiate the rate.
3: So this is the equivalent of, Nila, you telling people, you know, my your user base is, um, you know, U.S. and certain parts of Europe. And you're voluntarily going to stop distributing your content on half the world. Mm-hmm. You're essentially threatening with actually taking a step that's going to be suicidal from a business perspective. It's like saying, well, you know, yeah, you can go ahead and sell in Europe, but the U.S. is, you can't touch the U.S., you can't get into the market. There is no reason why a platform provider that's supposed to be a neutral platform provider like Apple would be allowed to create conditions that would force companies like ours to have to make that choice. They say, well, but we built it." Yeah, you built it. But when you built it, it wasn't like that. And it was significantly built on the backs of the, wor- the work of many app developers that came to the app store that you touted as the reason why people should come and, and, and use your platform. And, and, and by the way, whether you built it or not, it really doesn't matter from an antitrust perspective. The, the railroad companies built the uh, railroads and the steel companies built the uh, steel mills and the telephone companies built the telephone lines. And they had those monopolies and still the biggest cases in the history of antitrust enforcement in the U.S. had to do with companies that had built that infrastructure and then used the power that that control gave them to hurt competitors.
2: At the same time, I'm going to push you because I hear from our listeners and our readers all of the time that they love the way the products work, that Apple products work. They are paying the premium for Apple's products because they expect Apple's executives to make choices about how the products will work and where the limits are, and that they do not want regulators and lawsuits to change it. Like I said, I, I understand it. I, I think it is, in its way, an expression of consumer preference. You're wearing the watch, too. I think it's really notable that everyone called out that you were wearing the watch. Like it's a good product. What is the mechanism by which all of this regulatory and legal pressure actually makes the products better? That's the hump you have to get over with regular consumers not, oh, we need, to just, we need to just move money around between a bunch of huge companies. But at the end of the day, you're going to get better products out of more competition.
3: Yeah, well, and I know that that's, uh, you know, sometimes hard for consumers to envision it. They're not, they're not in this world and they just are judging the reality by, by the products that they have in front of them. But the reality is that fair competition and open competition is, is, is really a prerequisite for more innovation, for new products that will exist a year down the road that don't exist today. It is super hard to say what they are because that's why it's called innovation. Somebody has to invent these things (laughs) and develop them. But the problem fundamentally, and the way I explain it to my relatives and to my friends and to my high school classmates, uh, is to say that consumers also enjoy the fact that they have choice, that the fact that there is a thriving competitive environment between different music streaming services that are trying to do new things, that you're allowing a company like a clubhouse or another company to come up with new audio streaming scenarios that weren't there before. Everyone benefits when there's an environment where companies have an incentive to try to think of things that haven't been thought through before. The problem we have right now and how I explain it is you essentially have the world of mobile devices, which have become the primary way in which we if people access the internet and conduct internet commerce and all those things that's controlled essentially by two companies two companies that are not only the the platform but also competitors downstream in in some of those areas and consumers know what happens when there's no competition and when there's only one company that's left we we've experienced that in broadband services. We've experienced that in, in a number of other areas in our in our lives and in our lifetime. And we know that what happens is at that point, the incentive to innovate, the incentive to continue to improve your products goes away, prices rise, and that hurts consumers. I know that that sounds like something that might happen in the future, but there is evidence in history of what happened there. You know? When Apple was the only game in town with iTunes and download before music streaming uh, rose because of the things we did, and then other companies did later, the reality is it wasn 't great it wasn't great for music labels it wasn 't great for a number of other companies because you are negotiating with what one single player who has all the cards and who has all the the control competition is good competition ensures that there is a pipeline of exciting innovative products it keeps companies on their toes. so when a company with this amount of power Decides that they're going to forbid competition in areas where they really didn't have a position before. They're doing it just because they they have the power to do it, just because they can. That is something that, in the long run, is going to help uh, everyone. It is not the market economy system uh, that we want to have in this country and that other countries want to have, and uh, and it is not right. At the end of the day, you know, consumers benefit when they can. You know, without all these hurdles and friction and artificial things, they can enjoy all the perks of the latest and greatest innovations.
2: So let me put the the hard choice in front of you that I bet Eddie Q would love to put in front of you. That was a lot of very high-minded, idealistic conversation about competition and where it comes from and where innovation comes from. But as you said, Apple makes most of the money in in-app purchases and games. So if Apple came to you, Spotify's head lawyer, and said, OK, we're going to open up third party processing for music streaming services, but we're going to keep it locked down for games. Would you take that deal?
3: Um, are you telling me would I hold out, you know, the solution to the problem in one industry until the problem for all industries were solved? I, look, I, it's, a, it's a hypothetical, I would tell you. I t- I'll i take the win, which doesn't mean the battle's <laughs> over, doesn't mean the discussion is over. The, the reality is you look at each and every one of these cases Independently, the Epic litigation, the Spotify case, or all these things—I'm actually convinced that whether any one of those cases is won or lost is less important than the fact that now this is a topic that's in the in the forefront of the minds of policymakers and regulators around the world. I actually think that what has started is irreversible, and there is no outcome in the Epic case or in our case that is going to change the direction of this. If we win, that will solve some aspect of this, and then there'll be other cases that will solve other aspects of this for some other industries. If we lose, it will just strengthen the calls for legislative reform, because if we lose, it is because the current antitrust legal system hasn't kept up to speed with the internet economy and the power that these gatekeeper companies can have on a global perspective. So one way or the other, There are going to be changes. There is a realization that in the U.S. is remarkably bipartisan, that these online platform companies are just too powerful, that self-regulation has not worked and is not going to work because the economic incentives of these platform companies are just too strong, and that the government needs to step in and and needs to take steps to restore competition, as it has happened in the history in the US and in Europe and over over the the last century where there have been these major cases that have reset uh, how we understand the competitive landscape from a legal perspective
2: so i want to talk about the differences in the the US and the EU but let me just wrap up the trial what is your prediction of what the judge will rule in the epic
3: versus apple trial any lawyer that that has any <laughs> self respect will decline politely any invitation to make any prediction. <laughs> these are these are different case, difficult cases. These are cases that have so many, so many things in there. What, what I'm telling you is whatever happens at the trial level is not going to be the end of the epic case. And whatever happens in the epic case is not going to be the end of the Spotify case in Europe or so many other cases or regulatory investigations that are happening across Europe and in Asia and in other parts of the world. This is not the end. There's not no individual case where all the marbles are at stake. This is the beginning of a process to change our understanding on how policy and regulation should work with respect to these super powerful platform companies.
2: See, I quit being a lawyer so I could just make predictions left and right. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll talk to Horacio about whether the EU's antitrust policy is actually working.
1: Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review, the leading destination for smart management thinkers. You're a business leader, which means you have to deal with several different issues week after week. Look, it can be tough being the one calling the shots, but the Harvard Business Review can be a good place to help lighten the load on your shoulders. There's a lot of great stuff you can find at HBR.org, but for just $10 a month, you can get access to unlimited content, including insider newsletters, case studies, and the HBR mobile app. I had a chance to check out HBR.org, and let me tell you, the articles and case studies are very enlightening. Plus, you'll find podcasts, case studies, videos, newsletters, so much more. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code DECODER right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to hbr.org subscriptions, enter promo code DECODER to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private— There are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. HIMS knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need, discreetly. HIMS is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/decoder. That's h-i-m-s.com/decoder for your personalized treatment options. hims.com/decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan.
2: We're back with Horacio Gutierrez, Chief Legal Officer at Spotify. So let's talk about the US and the EU. We are living through what a handful of very smart people have told me is uh, like a natural A B test in regulatory policy. The United States has a very deregulatory approach. Our antitrust policy is based in something called consumer welfare, which is very focused on pricing effects. That means we've done virtually no regulation at all. The EU has antitrust policy based on ensuring competition, which means those regulators are very active in ensuring competition. They do a lot of things all of the time. How do you see those approaches playing out right now? And do you worry that you know one of the promises of the internet is a kind of this immediate, global market access. do you worry that as those approaches splinter that you know the power of the internet market is going to shrink over time?
3: Listen when I when I think of antitrust policy in the US, I, I really think you have to take a broad lens and look at the long history of antitrust enforcement. People say, well, you know we have a we have a more Darwinian uh, mindset when it comes to competition and so it's a more or less a fair thing. But the reality is, you know, antitrust law was created in this country. And at some times the U.S. has been at the forefront of that. And in some kind, you know, there's a kind of a pendulum swing that it goes to the appetite of governments to take certain cases on it. The, the, you see the, the Microsoft case was the last one that went, you know, uh, through the appeals process. But now you see the DOJ, even during the last administration, file cases against other other technology companies. You know, and, and the, the EU likewise has tried a number of things and it's developed their own set of cases and their own line of things. But in, in many respects, the while you could say the sources of the legal philosophy and the legal history of the two systems has has been slightly different, they're more similar than they're different. And, you know, I think right now what we're reacting to is the fact that over the last decade or so, there has been little enforcement in the U.S., Uh, When it comes to these unilateral conduct cases, which in Europe are called abuse of dominance, part of that is there's a series of case law that has really created a very deferential sort of approach in which it is super hard for the Department of Justice or the FTC or somebody else to bring cases. But that's just a moment in history. If you listen to the policy debates that that's happening right now on Capitol Hill in universities, if you look at the people who are leading this work in the FTC and the DOJ, you can tell that there is a. we are witnessing another step in the evolution of our policy when it comes to these things, which is normal considering that we're facing this unprecedented technological revolution with, with mobile computing and these platforms achieving a level of success and influence over every aspect of the economy that not even Standard Oil or AT&T had at their time. I mean, these platforms affect every aspect of our lives to an extent that not even the Windows operating system did 20 years ago or AT&T or any of these uh, other companies. So these are unprecedented challenges that requires thoughtful thinking through. And, and by the way, we are not advocates of some radical set of rules. We are super sensitive to the fact that the incentive to continue to innovate, to continue to improve technology, including the incentive for Apple to continue to improve their products, needs to be protected and needs to be there. But it isn't an either-or thing. It isn't an all-or-nothing thing. We're talking about surgical things that go after specific decisions Apple made for self-serving purposes that we think can and should be reversed. We're not talking about taking away Apple's Well earned right to enjoy the fruits of their labor and their innovation, the great products that they've created.
2: We had Senator Amy Klobuchar on the show a few weeks ago. She gave me the long history of American antitrust law. And certainly Europe imported a lot of that and then the US diverged. I take that point. But I look at the EU approach over the past 10 years and I see a lot of direct interventions in how products work in an effort to. Introduce competition. They introduced a browser ballot on Windows. They broke apart Chrome and Search from Android. There's now a search ballot in Android. The EU has been chasing after Google for a decade, and they have not managed to create the conditions for there to be a meaningful competitor to Search. Is any of is any of this working? Like that. That's the question I have. Like in the United States, we've done nothing. In Google's the dominant search engine. In Europe, they've done a lot of things. In Google's the dominant search engine. Is there another way forward that actually creates competition?
3: I think you're right. There, there have been sort of um, a little bit of trial and error, especially when it comes to remedies. I think when you look at the cases in, in Europe, you may think that the particular approach that they took to try to remedy the anti-competitive behavior and try to restore market conditions in some cases were not effective. In other cases, they were somewhat effective. In in some cases, they might have been effective, especially when you're talking about mergers and some structural remedies and things like that. But, you know, trying to balance an effective remedy that doesn't overshoot the mark and create more harm is is very hard. So there is a learning process. There is a trial and error process. And, And sometimes these cases take long because the rights of defense of the companies involved want to be respected. So if they were shooting from the hip and they were imposing draconian remedies you and i would be having a completely different conversation today i think what you're what you're seeing is a result of regulators that are trying to grapple with the economic implications of these things and trying to tailor remedies that solve the core of the problem without creating a num, you know all, all of the collateral damage that that we would decry, decry. Yeah, but the, the problem in
2: Europe is that Google has 90% market share, and then like eight companies have a slice of 10%. One of those companies is Microsoft, which is not hurting for money, and their interventions have not changed that number in 10 years. So it might be a targeted remedy, but I, I think it's fair to ask if the remedy is effective at all.
3: Yeah. I mean, that that's a legitimate question. And I'm sure depending on who you ask, they will give you a different answer. I think Google thinks it's
2: been very effective.
3: Yeah. But I, I also think that sometimes the problem you're trying to solve, the evidence of it being solved is not necessarily going to be market share. You right. know, there's many reasons why a company might, might, have, might have reached a a high market share based on completely legitimate pro-competitive reasons because they have a really good product. I'm not saying I'm not talking about a particular case. But so the measure cannot be, you know, has the market share come down. That is the wrong way to judge these cases. The measure needs to be are you creating space for competition? Are you creating space for market to to compete? But it's incumbent upon the competitors to have products that are good enough, innovated enough, and economically attractive enough to actually go and challenge for market share a particular product. And and I don't know that you can burden one or a set of antitrust decisions with creating that outcome. What you have to do is create the environment for competition and then see if the market decides and, you know. Again, these companies are very innovative, and a lot of what they do is legitimate. And frankly, the more competition there is, the more they will invest in innovation and the better their products will be. That is the virtuous cycle that you want to create.
2: You mentioned uh, the word gatekeepers earlier, which I'm guessing is a reference to the proposed Digital Markets Act in Europe. That law would basically lay out a set of rules by which dominant platforms would be classified as gatekeepers, and then they would have to do a bunch of things around interoperability. There'd be prohibitions against self-preferencing their own services. A lot of the themes that you and I have talked about. The last big EU regulation was the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. I have a vantage point in the United States. You know, I don't see it. Spotify is obviously based in Europe. You probably feel it a lot more directly than I do. But I see the GDPR as it created a lot of compliance costs, a lot of I accept buttons on the web, maybe not in more privacy. As you think about the DMA, what do you think its opportunities are and where do you think it will, where do you think it needs to be beefed up?
3: Listen, as the person who was responsible at Spotify for ensuring we were compliant with GDPR and who had to persuade our CEO that we needed to dedicate dozens and dozens of engineers for, you know, almost a couple of years to build the systems, I I sort of can definitely attest to how hard it was to get to a point where we feel we're compliant with it. But I, I would disagree that it didn't achieve anything. I think the GDPR, you know, we can always find things that should work better or could criticize, but the reality has become the standard by which we measure user data protection uh, practices and has really elevated the significance of this issue and made sure that companies were prioritizing it. And as painful as it is and was for us to be able to comply with it, and it's an ongoing job that we have to do every day... You know, we actually think it's worth it. You know, one of the biggest things that problems that the technology industry has today is the fact that trust, to a certain extent, has been lost with users because there's so many things there. And having a set of minimum standards in terms of how user data is used is something that we think would build and restore that trust. But but turning to the to the Digital Markets Act, look at the end of the day, the, the reality is that unless there is a new more effective set of rules that take into account the complexity and the magnitude of these companies and the economic impact that they have, and that can actually bring about a resolution in a timely fashion, you know, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to end up in a world in which a couple of companies are going to control most of the user data and most of internet commerce, and they're going to essentially exact that toll. From everyone, that's not a world that we want to we want to live in. And you know, the the problem with trying to address the modern technology competition challenges with the pre existing tools is that you know there's a risk of it becoming like uh, an archaeological expedition. It's like you know there's <laughs> regulators trying to dig out the bones of a dinosaur and then pondering whether it was another dinosaur or a meteorite that. That killed it. You know, by the time that that happens, it's ancient history that there would be scores of of technology startups and and, and innovative companies that would have been essentially extinct by that time. So how do you equip competition enforcers with the tools that they need, considering they're facing these enormous uh, information asymmetries? They're dealing with companies that are $2 trillion companies with a global footprint. How do you equip those regulators with tools that can bring about a fair and effective result in a shorter amount of time, as opposed to, like you said, you know, a case against Google lasting a, a 10 years? You know, we filed our complaint two years ago. They announced the opening of an investigation a year ago. Only recently they, they issued a, a preliminary finding in the form of a statement of objections. We're still a number of years away from a from a decision, and we will prosecute that case until the end. But the fact that you have to wait, you know, in the best of cases, five to 10 years to resolution tells you that currently the antitrust enforcement tools are not really up to the challenge of protecting the competitive process in the face of these massive online platforms.
2: We're going to take one more break, but when we come back, I'll ask Carasio about the criticisms of Apple compared to the criticisms we hear about Spotify today.
5: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away.
0: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: Okay, we're back with Decoder. Let me flip this around on you. You mentioned Apple's a $2 trillion company. Spotify is up against Apple. That's two orders of magnitude bigger than Spotify. Spotify, though, is a $45 billion company. I just looked up your market cap. We hear a lot from musicians. There's a musician's union that's very mad at Spotify all the time that your rates are too low, that the deal making with labels is opaque, that you'll cut deals with big artists and labels, but you won't negotiate with smaller ones. Do you feel competitive pressure as Spotify to make better deals with artists and labels? I feel like we we had the whole first half of this conversation, and I could turn it around from the artist's perspective and level many of the same critiques at Spotify. And
3: I'm happy to talk about that because it, it is not the same dynamic. The reality is 80% of the content on our platform is provided essentially by three or four content suppliers, four labels, if you think about it, the three majors. Plus one company that because of their share we we treat as uh, as majors. These companies, as I said, they control eighty percent of the content that gets streamed, the musical content that gets streamed on our on our platform. These companies have tremendous leverage over us. There is a reason why two thirds of the gross revenue that Spotify generates goes back to artists and the labels and publishers and organizations that they represent. In fact, we've gone from 0 to, you know, billions of dollars of revenue every year and our margins really are nowhere near what you would expect from technology margins because the content industry, particularly when you're dealing with uh with music and you're negotiating with a handful of incredibly powerful labels have kept it incredibly, you know, competitive. And you know, there's there's a lot of information out there. And, and there's a lot of passion on this topic. We've tried to add some transparency. You know, a couple of months ago, we we launched a website called Loud and Clear that I really enjoy people to go look at because it really explains the structure of the music industries and how the streaming royalties trickle down from the streaming services down ultimately to the artist and all the players in the value chain and the uh, commissions or the transaction costs that are Associated with that, but the reality is when Spotify was created, the music industry was in trouble the you know essentially had come down to to be on a global economic basis about half of what it was before, and it was streaming that really brought the industry back to growth where now we are really approaching the levels of the prior to the the challenges that made the the music industry shrink and we're very proud of the of the role that we played in that and we are actually convinced that we're we're only getting started that we can all continue to grow the pie and that everyone artists and the labels that represent them and publishers and you know collective collective organizations and others can benefit if we do that but You know, we have to grow the pie as opposed to basically point to the next guy and say, I just want a bigger slice for my piece as opposed to yours. Because at the end of the day, we're all in the same boat. We need to lift the boats together as opposed to turn on one another.
2: Yeah, but I I think I talk about this with every executive from a service that distributes culture, whether it's Fimeo or Instagram or or you from Spotify. If you're an artist, if you're an artist in the 70s or 80s, you could spend like two years in a studio and then release your record, sell a lot of copies of your record. And that would like make all of your money for you. If you're an artist now, your music is actually devalued because of streaming and widespread access. And you're like on tour all the time. Right. And so like, I hear the idea that you would grow the whole pie, but I think the average like indie artist is saying, how do I negotiate with Spotify? I don't have a label. I don't have a publishing organization I'm just trying to make money as a musician.
3: How many indie artists in 1970 were able to actually release albums that were successful and that allowed them to reap the economic benefits that you're, that you're describing?
2: I mean, I'm an old, I'm an old punk rocker. Like, I feel like I could name like a bunch of old punk rock acts that like started labels, right?
3: Well, listen, the reality is when you look at the numbers of artists that are making it, the, 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 what, what streaming has done and what technology in general has done, is that there were some bottlenecks in the in in the music industry before you really had to be like discovered by a label or create your own label which was really the exception rather than the rule and then you had you had to sign these deals and then there was only a small percentage of artists every year they had to be marketed through radio and you had to truck the vinyl records to the record stores and things like that it was a you know, what, what the Internet has done is is really eliminated a lot of the friction and a lot of the cost associated with both, you know, creating and then distributing and marketing music. And what that has created is a world in which there are now, you know, an incredible number of artists. And when you're talking about independent artists, the growth of independent artists on our platforms have been remarkable. There, there are some of the artists that have benefited, benefited the most uh, from the music streaming infrastructure in in twenty twenty alone there were seventy six thousand artists that were added to spotify playlist for the first time and and the large majority of, of of these were were discovered because they were pitching music through our playlist uh pitching tool you know in in last year fifty seven thousand artists represent 90% of the monthly streams on Spotify. And so so essentially the, the the bottom of what used to be the bottom of the pyramid has actually moved up and there's a much larger number of artists that are now being streamed. Artists are able, able to find niche audiences that were not available to them before. You look at the Belgian, you know, hip hop scene and, you know, I, I'm not kidding about it. It's, uh, you, you go to the Netherlands and places like that, th- these are these are things that are have been enabled because the barriers to entry into the market and to achieve global distributions have been dismantled because of the streaming business model and technology and we've now have over 300 million users that are listening to music that is being monetized and that is benefiting the creators of music and the organizations that that represent them so i look it's a constant negotiation Everyone always wants a little bit more, you know, their slice to be a little bit bigger. But the reality is when you look at the economic situation of the music industry today, the industry is much better. You're seeing a tremendous explosion of creativity, at a tremendous number of artists, international artists. You look at K-pop, you look at all these the Latin crossover and things that are now popular because We've created this large audience of of globally minded users that are willing to experience it. And we've developed personalization and discovery tools that expose people to music in ways that the the radio model of music marketing would have never been able to allow. We're very proud of that. And, and and you know, we'll continue to change and learn and, and try new things. And, and, you know, we'll also continue to add transparency to the way the, the, the economics of the music streaming world uh, work, because we believe that the value of our contribution is, you know, not necessarily completely obvious for some people and we have to talk about it and understand the economic structure of the industry for people to get it.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm asking these questions because I see your relationship with Apple somewhat mirrored by the relationship creators might have with, with Spotify. So beyond music, right? Spotify is this large position in, in podcasting. You've bought a number of companies, Gimlet, The Ringer, Anchor, Megaphone. Megaphone is like the central player in the podcast ecosystem. Our, our show is distributed on Megaphone. This is great synergy for you. You're going to talk on Decoder, and then Megaphone is going to distribute it. But that like gives you a huge amount of like data insight into the podcast industry that almost no one else can get. right? And then you could use that to inform programming decisions. I could take that, abstract that out, and say, okay, that's the criticism of, of Amazon. right? And if I was an EU regulator looking at a law like the DMA, I might say, well, Megaphone is a gatekeeper. Do, like, do you feel that pressure as well?
3: Well, I, look, I... I just have to tell you what this this sort of moral equivalence between what Apple has done with the App Store and Spotify Mm -hmm. and some other platform, I just think is not based on fact. We would be equivalent to Apple if we told artists and labels that they couldn't be on the Spotify platform unless they paid us rather than we pay them. They paid us 30 percent of all the revenue that gets generated. And we get to promote certain artists that we pick over somebody else and we get to You know, make it super hard for artists to be able to find an audience on the platform. If we did all those things, then the parallels that you're trying to draw. Well, these are just the
2: parallels that I I hear from people. You know, as I as I prepare for these conversations, I try to look around and I think about what people tell me and that the parallels are maybe not in the specifics, but is in that feeling right of this is a this is a contract I can't negotiate or this is data I don't want to give up. And I, I'm, I'm wondering how you balance those out.
3: Well, look, nobody, nobody's provided more data transparency in the music industry that we have. We created Spotify for artists. We provided it to artists for free. They get the, the, the ability to get real-time data on how their music is performing. We, we actually, you know, added transparency in an area that was really characterized by tremendous opacity when it comes to data and this data is incredibly valuable. It's data that we are able to pull together because we have this incredibly large uh, user base and we have the technology tools to create it. So we are providing that data to artists and uh, the feedback that we get from artists is uh, is incredibly positive when it comes to, to that. We are allowing artists to find audiences that would have been very hard for them to find, including Artists that are, that are chosen to be independent and that are not signed by one of the major labels, because now there are tools that they can benefit from where, in some respects, they don't need uh, some of those terms. So I, 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 I take exception to the, the comparison. I know it's very easy to say, well, these people are a platform. You guys are saying you want to be a two-sided platform. Ergo, you're equally bad as somebody else who's behaving badly. But that's not a real comparison.
2: I wouldn't say bad. I, I think the challenges are, are similar of how you might manage a platform. I think every episode of the show, we I found myself talking about platform governance uh, in surprising ways. Let me bring these two threads together. I'm seeing across the entire range of other social apps this huge push towards tipping, right? Twitter is going to let you tip uh, people who are good at tweeting. They're going to let you do ticketed events, Clubhouse is doing tip. It's just like down the line. You you name a platform, they're all opening the cookie jar. All of those platforms have to pay Apple 30%. One class of creators that people would be most likely to pay for are artists, right? So if I love some indie band that's mad about their rates from Spotify, they could tell their listeners, listen to us on Spotify, but kick us five bucks. Is that a service that you just won't offer because of the Apple tax right now?
3: I won't say that, that we will never offer it. You know, I think it is hard because of the set of rules that Apple has. But, you know, I I can't comment on what might or might not be in the product, product roadmap. And there there is nothing intrinsically related to tipping that would cause us not to uh, consider it if we can make it work from a technology and economic perspective. And some of that means... Trying to figure out these app store rules, and and some of it is making sure that the market is there for that. So we are looking for different ways in which we can create monetization avenue for for creators. And um, you know, when we have something to to say about that, we'll come out and announce it. I mean, this
2: should be a great time to announce it, though.
3: Yeah, I mean, we do. We I mean, you I you also know that we we've announced that the rollout of um, paid podcast opportunities. I think tomorrow begins actually the rollout of of the program. So it's in terms of podcast monetization, the ability of podcasters to be able to monetize on our platform by having their direct subscription and, and payment relationship yeah. with uh, uh, with users, that is something that we have announced. So we are trying to create those opportunities, and we're trying to actually learn from Apple's mistakes and try not to replicate them uh, in the way we run our business.
2: The paid podcast, execution is really interesting, right? Because there's not a button in Spotify that lets you spend money inside of Spotify to pay for a podcast. You have to leave, go to Anchor on the web and sign up over there and then get the feedback. That feels like, okay, we're trying to avoid this platform tax situation in a way that, you know, doing that for whatever, you know, number of artists at scale would be almost impossible.
3: Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, obviously if we can, Avoid having to pay the Apple tax. We will do it. We will create ways consistent with the law and consistent with sound business practices that would uh, that would allow us to create that. We thought we did that in 2016 when we when we took Apple's in-app payment system down. We did it. One of the first things we did when I joined Spotify was actually look at the rules, the app developer guidelines, and it was I think section three one one at the time. And we spent weeks looking at that rule. And and all it required for us was not to have a buy button on the app for subscriptions. All we had to do was not to have an explicit link to an external payment side. So we took down IAP. And the reason we took it down is when I joined Spotify, we were in this situation where they had forced us to increase our consumer prices to $12.99 per month. And then they bought Beats Music, rebranded it, and launched it at 9 So now they were <laughs> undercutting us in price because we had to pay them the 30%. So at that point, we had it was inevitable. We had no choice. We had to take the IAP down, and we did it in compliance with the rules. What did they do? They changed the rules the month after to make, retroactively make the step that we had taken a violation of the rules. And And since then, they've amended the rules two more times in ways that give them ever-expanding powers to basically control the way in which we run our business. And that's, look, the facts speak for themselves. Whatever you think about Apple as a company and the history of Apple, I have a lot of respect for it. I actually have a lot of respect for a number of friends that I know who work for for Apple and very loyal Apple uh, employees. But you have to call out the areas in which they behaved in a way that's not right. And uh, that's what we're doing.
2: You're a good lawyer. I know you're not going to make a prediction about the trial, but make a sweeping prediction. Where do you think this overall platform regulation, where do you think the energy comes from next?
3: I think you've seen companies from, you know, every slice of technology, of the technology industry come out. You've seen media companies come out. You've seen a number of companies come out. I think this is irreversible. I think the calls for sound but effective regulation are unstoppable. And I think a couple of years from now, there will be strong pieces of legislation, as well as law enforcement and competition law enforcement decisions that will begin the process of laying the foundations for how competition in technology markets should be conducted in the future.
2: Well, Horacio, it was great talking to you. Thank you for coming on Decoder. I suspect that as all of this happens, I'm going to want to talk to you again, so we'll see you again soon.
3: Anytime, Eli. Thank you.
2: Thank you again to Horacio Gutierrez for taking the time to talk today, and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at verge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next week.
5: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals.